And one thing I'm very certain of is that I never again want to apply for a position as a pastor at a church. It, it's not easy. It, it, you know, usually when you apply, you find out you're one of like 300 people. And what they do is they, they you, right from the start, you have to have a four-year baccalaureate degree. You have to have uh, three years of seminary in almost every place you apply. And then when you go in there, um, you apply and they want you to send in your resume. It's a very extensive resume, and you send it in. And because they're volunteers, then you never hear from them again. You know, that's how you find out after a year, you say, I guess I didn't get this one. You can call them up and get a machine and leave a message, but you probably won't get called back. So you don't know. Now, if you're really fortunate, you do get contacted, and they want you to fill out an application that, and I'm not kidding, can take 8 to 12 hours because they can ask all these questions that you can't normally ask because it's, you know, a private, you know, area it's a, uh, you know, that they can do that with. So it's, they go through, and, and you, you answer all these questions, and you send it in. Then you don't know. You, you have to wait and see if you hear back from them again. And then if you do, they want to interview you on the phone. They want to interview you in person. They want to take photographs. And all I mean, anytime you look for a job, I don't know. Some people maybe enjoy that. I don't like it that much. Um, the only reason I think that people persist in being a pastor is because what other job is there where you only have to work one day a week, right? <laughs> so today I want to tell you about how Jesus picked the first pastors that he had. Um, and they were really essentially pastors, but they started off as the first disciples or the apostles. And we're going to conclude our series on um, who do you follow? Because we've been doing a whole series about how Jesus called his first disciples. We've looked at the first five, and we're going to look at the next seven today and kind of review some of the first five, and we'll bring it to a conclusion. And it's really interesting the way that he did that. And so um, that's what we're going to do today. So if you'd like to join me, uh, you can open your Bibles if you have one, or just look on the screen as we'll look at Luke chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 16 today and see how Jesus called his disciples, his 12 disciples starts in verse 12 of uh, Luke chapter 6. One of those days, Jesus went out on a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Jesus called his disciples. I want to look at it from two angles today. Is, is how did he call them and who he called? So how did he call them? In verse 12, um, the first thing that we should know is that Jesus um, was under opposition. He was in extreme pressure. People were turning against him, and he had to decide what he was to do next. He was already in the process of naming some guys, you know, calling guys to work with him, and so it appears that this process had already begun, but now he has to decide how fast does he have to go with it and what does he have to do. It's a crisis moment, and in a crisis moment, the most important thing that we can learn is that Jesus got alone by himself and prayed to God. And so Jesus gets alone to pray and have a conference with God. When it took place, it said one of those days, probably within the first year of his ministry, of his public ministry, where it took place on a mountainside, probably in the district of Galilee near Capernaum where he was living at the time. But that it took place is that what we're being told here is that he got alone and he prayed. And he prayed very seriously for something called leadership. Uh, when we put people in positions of leadership, 
in whatever it might be, uh, whether it be in church or even in any area of life, we should be very serious about praying about who those leaders are because they influence how things go. And it's easier to put people in position than it is to take them out. So you really have to pray about that. And so he's praying about who he's going to name and what it's always all going to be. Now, the other thing that's very interesting here is it says he prayed, and then it kind of adds, almost like an addition, that, by the way, he prayed all night. Now, the reason it says that is because it was really unique. You don't usually pray all night. And, in fact, it's the only time in the Bible that it says that Jesus prayed the whole night. So this is not an endorsement for you to join Christian Insomniacs Incorporated. All right? Sometimes, though, we think that way, don't we? Sometimes we kind of feel like, well, if I'm really a good Christian, I'll do all these really extreme things, and that will please God. And, and that's not the point here. Uh, there's uh, an interesting article by one of my favorite authors, A.W. Tozer. He writes an article um, called It Came After Midnight. And the, the basics, basis of that article is people are saying, you don't really see your important prayers answered unless you pray past midnight. I'm not sure this really deep prayer warrior. And, and Tozer contends in the article that that's not true. What, what is important is that you're talking all the time to God. You have a relationship with him as your heavenly father. So it should be a natural day-to-day, moment-by-moment situation. But what he says is that there will come times of crisis in your life where you're praying and you lose track of time and you may find yourself past midnight. I don't know if you've ever had that happen, but I've sat down a number of times in my life and intended to pray for a short time, and next thing I knew, some distance had, had spread, and I couldn't believe how long I'd been praying. And so there will be times like that if we're really seeking after God. And during times of crisis and even making big decisions like who's going to be leaders in your church, you ought to pray, pray quite a bit. And that's what Jesus does at the beginning here. So he lays that down for us for the foundation. And in a sense, I think that's the most important thing we're going to say today is that we should be seeking God for all of our important decisions and especially in times of crises. But then he tells us who he calls. And um, there's some interesting observations, just some quick observations that I want to make as we we get looking at this today. These are observations that I would say uh, give us principles. Uh, These aren't commands. God doesn't say this is what you should do. But these are principles that... When we are looking at naming people as pastors or elders or leaders in our church, or when you're looking at hiring somebody for leadership in your company or in your business, or if you are looking at electing a public official, you know, all these things, whenever you are looking at a leader, you pray, and then there's some guidelines that Jesus gives us based on who he chooses. A couple things. First one that I thought was interesting is that... um, These guys are men connected with Israel's past. They're connected with Israel's past. Now, there are 12 of them, 12 disciples. And in the Old Testament, there were 12 what? There are 12 tribes. Remember, the 12 sons of Jacob became the 12 tribes of Israel. Are they in any way connected? Luke chapter 22, verses 29 through 30, that's Jesus being quoted there. Luke 22, 29 through 30 says that the 12, Jesus, Jesus says the 12 disciples will reign over the 12 tribes of Israel in heaven. So there is a very definite connection going on here, so much so that some people say, oh, this is the new Israel, that our goal now is to take the laws of the old Israel and expand it on into the world today, and we're to establish a new Israel. But that's not what this passage is saying. In fact, it's intriguing that right before this passage in chapter 5, 
verses 33 through 39. You can do some research there. 33 through 39, Jesus talks about the old wineskins and the new wineskins and the old world and the new world. And he basically says, we have a whole new order. It's time to push reboot. This is a whole new movement. But in starting this new movement, it's intriguing to me that Jesus chooses people who are students of the old movement. He starts a new movement with people who are students of the old movement. In other words, he could have chosen Gentiles or non-Jews. The majority of his followers will be Gentiles or non-Jews. But he chooses those that are Jewish because they know the Bible. They know the prophecies. They know what he's all about. And the guys he chooses, we don't know all the details about all of them, but from what we know, they were all devoted to the Old Testament. In fact, the first five seem clearly to have been followers of John the Baptist. These were pretty devoted guys. And even Matthew, who we learn is a tax collector, and the tax collectors were not well thought of by the Jewish people, as we learned last week. Nevertheless, his gospel includes more information about the Old Testament than any of the other gospels. These guys knew their stuff. And so I think the principle is that when we put somebody in position of leadership in the church... They ought to know their Bibles. They ought to be growing in their relationship with God and in their studies of the Word of God. They should be devoted to it. And they should, they should be part of, you know, they should be people that, you know, within the church or within the company, they agree with the vision, mission, and values. They're on board. They're on the same page. Um, that's where you want to start as much as possible. Now, these guys couldn't possibly conceive of all the things Jesus was going to teach them. But, you know, as much as possible, they're people that are, are moving in that direction. The second observation I make, uh, I made as I looked at this, is that they were, um, they had, they were men with diversity. Jesus chooses men that are diverse. He doesn't, it's not like he doesn't have a bunch of Christian clones. And I'll tell you, the greatest example is, again, Matthew, who's this tax collector, who's a, you know, pro-government, and then he has Simon, who's the zealot, who is part of a revolutionary group, who is anti-government. So right away, Jesus has to be um, a master at crisis management, right? I mean, because these guys are not going to always get along with each other. But in leadership, that's a good thing. You don't want everybody to be the same. You want people to be different in their backgrounds so that they can sharpen each other and look at things from a different perspective. It can be unhealthy if you have a church, for example, where everybody's the same social economic group, everybody's the same nationality, everybody's the same age, everybody's the same because they have very narrow vision and they don't see God from a full perspective. And so you know, he has a diverse group of men that he puts on this team. It's interesting to me, too, that these men were, were men that were leaders. And I've seen this more and more. So often you'll hear people say, well, you don't have to necessarily be qualified as a leader because, you know, we'll just put you in and you'll become a leader. We can train that. God will make you a leader. But God makes some people leaders and some people aren't. Um, and I see once again that these guys, you know, we look at Simon Peter's life. He was rough around the edges, but he clearly had natural leadership gifts. And we see that with some of the others. But also, most of these guys had their own businesses and were pretty successful. They had their homes and everything else. They were doing relatively well within their, their life. So, you know, they weren't great leaders, but they had some leadership ability. And we see that right from the front. And, and he's going to make them leaders. And they, this is a very important task that he will have them do. Um, he's going to call them apostles. Here they call them um, disciples, but later they'll be called apostles. And a disciple is a follower. An apostle literally is one who is a messenger. So they're taking, they, these guys will take the message that they're given and they're going to share it with other people. So they have to represent God. And it's very important 
that they are people that represent him correctly. So he's going to pick guys that are good for that. By the way, he goes down and it says he picked these guys as disciples from other guys. And in Matthew chapter 10, it says that he had about 72 men that he called his disciples and he sent them out on an evangelistic campaign. So he probably had about 72 guys and he only picked 12 out of the 72. Five of them, maybe seven, he's already pretty much indicated he's going to you know, have been following him already. And he formalizes them and then he names the rest of them. And he brings these guys all together on this occasion. Now, um, so, so there's this sense of competence. There's this sense that these guys are qualified for the job. Uh, I think it's no accident that they're young, mostly unattached, and very energetic. They are what the astronauts called the what? The right stuff, right? They were the right stuff for the job. He picked guys that had qualifications for what he was going to ask them to do. But he also, most importantly, picks guys that have character. These men are, if nothing else, extremely loyal, with the exception of one, Judas. Everybody else follows him to their death. All but one of them actually die a martyr's death for him. That's pretty good loyalty, I'd say, wouldn't you? Can't get much better than that. Um, but what strikes me as most fascinating is that they were so ordinary otherwise. Um, yeah, they had some ability. I mean, they had some leadership skills, and they had, you know, they were loyal, um, and they knew their Bibles. For the most part, they were growing in that, but none of them were geniuses. None of them were famous. None of them were rich. None of them even had probably beyond what today we'd call a high school education. They were very ordinary men who God used in extraordinary ways. I call them the extraordinary, ordinary men. And how did that happen? That was the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit transforming their lives, just as he can do and should be doing with everybody in this room who knows him personally. So I want you to think about your own life and see who you identify with the most as we do a quick run-through of these 12 disciples, and we get to know them a little bit better and a little bit of review on some, but, but very briefly, and then we're going to just kind of tell how their lives were transformed. The first person is Simon. So Simon is always named first, indicating that he was the main leader, and also, as we saw earlier, that he's probably the oldest of the 12. And so he, he picks Simon, and Simon, as we've learned, is sort of an emotional and impulsive character, but Jesus says he's going to name him Peter, which literally means the rock. So he's going to make him the pillar that he's going to use to build this great church of his. Um, Peter will betray, or actually will deny Jesus is probably better words. He denies Jesus three times before his crucifixion, but afterwards he becomes a solid rock of a leader. And he becomes an extraordinary orator and evangelist who literally leads thousands of people into a relationship with Jesus Christ and is the primary person God uses to establish his church in Jerusalem, to expand it beyond Jerusalem. And then um, after that, he's the guy who kind of opens it up to all the Gentiles or non-Jews. He travels throughout the Roman Empire, according to what we see in the Bible and throughout what we know from tradition. He goes throughout the empire, leading people to Christ, strengthening churches, and he becomes extremely well-known. In fact, at the time of this writing, the people who read this knew probably one other person's name other than Jesus, and that was probably Simon Peter. He was very well-known at that time uh, because of what he was doing. He was the primary leader of the church. Now, um, his assistant was a guy named Mark, and though we don't know for sure, many believe that what happened is that Mark took some excerpts from his messages and he put them together in what most believe was the first gospel written, 
the Gospel of Mark. And then Peter wrote two letters of his own, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, before he himself, probably in the, the early to mid-60s, was crucified by Nero in Rome. And according to tradition, Jesus said, I am not worthy to be crucified like my Savior. And he requested that they crucify him upside down. And they did. And there is evidence, even recently, to show that his remains are in the bowels of St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. Now, understand this, that these are historical figures. This is not make-believe. Um, that's who Peter was. He had a younger brother whose name is always after his, and his name was Andrew. By the way, Andrew, if your name is Andrew, that's a great name. It means manly. Manly, manly. So Andrew, that's what his name is. A Andrew is manly, and that's his, that's his younger brother. And, um, yeah, Rocky and manly, those are great names. Um, so... so um, Andrew's younger, and they're both fishermen together, and they're both part of the first four. And the first four are almost always together with Jesus, and they're called his inner circle. They're, they're the four people that are the closest to him on planet Earth. But what's interesting about Andrew is that while the four are always together, Andrew kind of has watched the beat of his own drum in some ways. He just sort of disappears. You know, he kind of comes and goes. So sometimes there's three of them, sometimes there's four, and he, he's kind of a little bit detached from the others in some ways. But nevertheless, he loves Jesus and he introduces people to Jesus. There's indications that his brother, his, he, inter he introduces his friend Philip to Jesus and we know that he introduces his brother Peter to Jesus and he introduces many others through the years as he becomes a missionary um, to Parthia, to Scythia and then gives his life for the Lord. He's also crucified in Greece. And when he's crucified, they crucify him on a cross that is the shape of an X. And that now is called St. Thomas's Cross. So if you want to do something different, go out and get a necklace with a cross on it as an X. And then you can tell people that St. Thomas's Cross. Um, then there are two brothers, James and John, who are the sons of Zebedee. James' name is always first, so he's the oldest of the two brothers. Um, James is very loyal. He's always there, except at the very end. You know, he doesn't show up when Jesus is on the cross, but none of the others really do either. But James is um, he's loyal with this group of the inner circle. Um, interesting thing about their background. We know a little bit more about their background. One thing we know is that their father Zebedee had servants. You did not have servants in those days unless you had money. They were probably pretty well-to-do. We also know at the end of John that John records that they had some kind of connection with the high priest in Jerusalem, which enabled John and Peter to go in and see Jesus' um, court hearing. By the way, they had the court hearing um, actually at the home of Ananias, but later the other court hearing with Pontius Pilate was in another building, and they've discovered that recently. They, they were digging, and they, they uncovered it, and they went underneath, and they found this palace, and they, they realized that this was the place where they actually had that hearing. Uh, they just discovered that recently in Jerusalem. It's been in the news a lot. Um, but, but this event, um, it took place in this home of the high priest, and they had some connection with the high priest. Now, their mother, we believe her name was Salome. We know that she followed Jesus and that they gave money to Jesus. Now, there's also some belief, it's not for certain, but many, if not most, scholars believe these days, and tradition seem to believe, that Salome's sister was Mary, making her Jesus' aunt and making them his cousins. So these guys have a lot to stand on. And as a result, Salome makes this audacious request 
that when Jesus comes into power, that he, put, she put, that he puts one brother, James, on his right hand and another brother, um, John, on the other hand. Is that prideful? I mean, it's almost like arrogant. Um, and, and so we see that these guys kind of, we don't understand it all, but there's kind of a little bit of something there that's a little bit of snobbery there. And it's underlined by the fact that in John 4, John records that they're with the Samaritans, whom they really look down as as sort of the scum of the earth. And and they tell Jesus, just wipe these guys out. Just burn them up. And Jesus says, basically, get out of my face, you sons of Bonerges, which means you sons of thunder or you violent tempered ones. So James and John have some temper issues. And they seem to kind of think they're better than other people. But God does some transforming work in their life. James will become the primary leader in the church. As Peter and John and others travel about, he takes over the reins of the church. He apparently has some, uh, he's gifted in administration and organization. He sets it up and probably leads for about 10 years over the original church in Jerusalem and gets everything established. And then in the year 44, AD 44, as recorded in Acts chapter 12, Herod Agrippa takes him out in front and, to set an example, takes a sword and slices his head off. And he's the first of the disciples to give their life for Jesus Christ. Little brother is John. John is also sort of a temperamental snob, you know, a little bit of a temper and issues there. He, he seems to be more melancholic. As we read his writings, he's a very deep-thinking um, person. And he develops a very close relationship with Jesus and is the most loyal to him. He even goes to the cross and stands before the cross when Jesus is crucified, the only disciple not to run away. And his close relationship with Jesus and his loyalty to Jesus, loyalty to Jesus earns him the nickname, the Beloved Apostle. Isn't that cool? And so he, he is really close with Jesus. Jesus says when he dies, he says, I want you to take care of my mother, Mary which is another reason why people think, some people think that was his aunt. But he takes care of Mary for the rest of her days. And when Jerusalem is destroyed, he moves on to Ephesus. We know, by the way, he would travel. He became very close to Peter, and they would travel and speak together. And he was apparently a gifted speaker himself, more of a teacher in style, it sounds like. And so they would go to Ephesus, which is near the center of the Roman Empire in modern-day Turkey. And there they would take up house. And, and John would be a leader there. And he would write the Gospel of John, the last Gospel account. And they would try to kill him, but he would survive several attempts. And then they would exile him to the Isle of Patmos, and he would have these extraordinary visions of God. And he would write them down in a book, and they call it the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. And then he would come back um, to Ephesus, and he would continue to minister. And he would write 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, and he would influence some of the great early leaders of the Christian faith, guys whose names you only know because you see them on churches every once in a while now, guys like Polycarp and Papias and Ignatius who would refer to their relationship with John. And at the end of his days, hardly able to, not even able to walk anymore, they would carry him in into a stretcher to churches, and he would raise himself on an elbow, and he'd look up to people and he'd say, my dear children, love, the Lord, love God, with all, you know, love God. You know, love one another. My dear children, love one another. And then he'd lay down and they'd carry him out. And he died in his 80s, approximately A.D. 96. We know a little bit more about him because he lived uh, long, so we have some other accounts from more people. Now, we don't know as much about Philip, but here's an interesting observation about Philip. When you have the 12, you know, okay, there's a list of 12. 
but they break them into sections of three. Isn't that interesting? So there's three sets of four, and every time you have a list, they're always grouped in the same four. Sometimes they're in different order, but they're always in the same four. And there's the person, and it's always the same people at the head of the list. So you have Peter and his, the guys that are in his four, and then you have um, Philip and the group in his four, and then you have James, son of Alphaeus, and the guys in his four. So as we look at and we study how they did discipleship in those days, it seems clear that Jesus had a group of 12, which is more like a small group, but then he would break them into groups of four for more intensive training, and that he had a leader over each group of four. Isn't that interesting? And so the leaders would be Peter, Philip, and James, son of Alphaeus. So what we know about Philip besides that is that he was born in Bethsaida, which in Hebrew means fish town. That's the same place that Peter and Andrew are from, not a real big place. They probably went, he went to school probably at Fishtown Elementary with Petey and Andy, okay? They were buds since they were young and very likely professionally linked together through the fishing industry. What's interesting is the first time we meet him is he's in the Jordan Valley. You did not go to the Jordan Valley to fish. There was nothing to fish. It was like desert, a lot of it. The only reason you would go there is to follow John the Baptist, So he appears to be a follower of John the Baptist. John the Baptist um, tells uh, John and Andrew that Jesus, he believes, is the Messiah. So they go up to him, spend time with him, and invite him to their home. And on their way home, while they're still in the valley, they meet Philip. And Andrew appears to introduce Philip to Jesus. This is all recorded in John chapter 1. And then they go to Capernaum, and Philip goes and introduces his friend Nathaniel, probably his best friend, to Jesus. What we see here is what we, we call oikos in our church. The word oikos in Greek means um, your extended family or household. And this is again an example of it, that God strategically and supernaturally places 8 to 15 people in your life whom you can influence the most for him. Who are those people? For them, it was their brother. It could be your brother or sister, like, you know, Simon Peter, you know, for Andrew. Or it could be um, a friend that you grew up with, you see around town all the time, like uh, Philip was um, to Andrew. Or it could be a friend that you work with. These guys all work together. Or it could be your best friend, like Nathaniel was to Philip. Who are the people in your life that you can begin praying for, that you can befriend if you don't know them already, that you can spend time with, that you can talk about God and invite to church if they're not going to church or they don't know the Lord? And uh, if you've come here, we've seen some people coming that have been invited. And it's just wonderful to have people come here. And we hope you feel at home and love because the most wonderful thing we can do is tell you about our relationship um, with God. So what else do we know about Philip? We know that the dude just asks questions. He asks, he's inquisitive. He asks more questions than anybody else in the Bible. Um, and he seems to be a little bit contrarian at times, but he stays in there with Jesus. We believe that, uh, according to tradition, that he went to Turkey, modern-day Turkey, and gave his life in Hierapolis. And there he was died. He died and was buried. The next guy is kind of interesting. His name is Bartholomew, but we know it's not his name. How do we know it's not his name? Because Bartholomew means son of Talmai. It's a title. It could be like a surname, but it's more like a title. Well, why would you go by that? Well, it's very easy. Talmai was a very common name. It was a name of royalty. 
So you know how the Pharaoh of Egypt is the king of Egypt? The Talmai of Gesher was the king of Gesher. And the Talmai of Gesher had a daughter named Maacah who once years ago, centuries ago, had married um, King David. And so what we know by this is that this guy had royal blood. And he was going by his kind of his princely name. So who was this young prince? What was his real name? This is what's interesting. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he's called Bartholomew. In John, there is no Bartholomew. But the guy who's mentioned in his place is Nathaniel. And Nathaniel's also called an apostle. And um, all of a sudden, we start putting the pieces together and say, this must be Nathaniel. And also in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you always have Bartholomew's name right after Philip. And in John... And John would have known these guys better because they all would have been fishing buddies, probably. Um, he refers to him as Nathaniel, which is probably his more informal name. So Bartholomew, so his name was Nathaniel Bartholomew, basically. And um, he was very close to Philip. And the record shows, you know, at least the tradition says that they ministered together as a team, as missionaries, and that he ultimately gave his life for the Lord in Armenia. Kind of a recurring theme. These guys, you know, all get bumped off. So um, Matthew is next. We talked quite a bit about him last week. The, the main thing to keep in mind is he had two names. Levi was his, um, his Hebrew name, and Matthew was his English name, just like somebody in America who uh, is from Mexico, say, might have two names, a Spanish name and an English name, or you, maybe you'd pronounce it different. So they have one with their family and one that, you know, for the government that predominantly speaks English. And in their country, they would have two names a lot of times. So he chooses his name Matthew, and um, we learned from last week that he was a tax collector, probably the most considered the most sinful of all of the disciples, and yet he became very faithful, writing the book of Matthew, and as Joey said, um, by tradition, gave his life for the Lord in Ethiopia. And then we have a guy whose name that is pretty familiar with us, and that's Thomas, and we know him mostly by his infamous nickname. What was his nickname? Doubting Thomas, because he doubted the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. A better nickname for him today would be Eeyore. He was the guy who I said, I don't think we can do it. I don't know. In one case, he goes, I don't think we should do it, but let's all go die with him. You know, I mean, that's just kind of how he was. But he was extremely loyal, probably a fisherman. His name Thomas means, uh, by the way, it's another example. His Greek name Thomas means twin, and his Hebrew name Didymus means twin. So in all likelihood, he was a twin, right? So that's what we know about him. So maybe there were two guys like that out there. But he was a unique character, but boy, was he loyal. And he goes all the way to India. There is actually a mountain in India called Mount, uh, Mount Thomas that we believe was named after him. He is killed there by a spear. Um, and that's where he's buried, um, somewhere there near Madras in India. Um, after him, now, who do we have next there? I'm kind of losing track. Oh, we start the last group. James, son of Alphaeus. Don't know much about James. They call him son of Alphaeus to distinguish, distinguish him from James, son of Zebedee. But, but here's the deal. Matthew, Matthew had a father named Alphaeus too. He's Matthew, son of Alphaeus. Were they brothers? Was that the same dad? We don't know. It's either that or, and this would make a lot of sense. It was a very popular name. Alphaeus. That's probably a popular name for those days, huh? Why don't we call people that today? Some of you that are thinking about having kids, every once in a while we have a little plug for this. This would be a good one, Alpheus. We don't know. We don't know very much else about him. Um, we do know this, and this is interesting, that according to tradition, he died at, in crucifixion in Egypt. 
And the Coptic Christians, one of the first denominations of Christianity from Egypt, looked to him as their founder, so to speak. Um, and they've been in the news quite a bit lately. Um, there were some that were beheaded, remember, um, in Libya that were workers there that has caused quite a crisis recently by Islamic extremists. They, they actually traced their roots um, back to James coming to Egypt. Now, um, the next fellow that we have on our list is Simon. And he, to distinguish him from Simon Peter, he was called Simon the Zealot. What does that mean? Well, in all likelihood, he was part of the Zealot Party. Uh, that was a prominent party during those times. It was like a political party. They were very much like the Pharisees, except unlike the Pharisees, these guys were violently opposed to the oppressive Rome. And they became, became kind of a terrorist group. And they were actually assassinating people and going out and doing some really violent things. And as a result, they had a movie named after them called Masada, um, which is where they're all destroyed by the Romans in the Roman War. And they got the Romans very upset until they went ahead and they destroyed the temple and Jerusalem. He was not that extreme. These were the early days, but he was still pretty extreme to be part of that group. And he changes, and we don't know much more about him, except he's closely associated with the next guy, whose name is Judas, son of James, to distinguish him from the other Judas. Um, Judas, son of James, had a couple nicknames. One of them was Jude. He is not the Jude that writes a book in the Bible, Jude, because that Jude is Jesus' brother. He identifies himself as Jesus' brother. This is another Jude. This is the Jude that had the song written about him by Paul McCartney. Um, and so now he also was known as Thaddeus. And you know what Thaddeus means? This is so cool. Thaddeus means the big-hearted one. Wouldn't you like to be known as the big-hearted one? And wouldn't you like to have a friend who's the big-hearted one? And so um, Simon did. And Simon and Jude became best buddies, I guess. And they traveled, as far as we know traditionally, they traveled around in service to God. They went to Assyria or modern-day Iraq and gave their life to the Lord somewhere else in Persia, and that leads us with um, the most infamous of all, uh, Mr. Judas Iscariot, and you don't get very many people naming yourselves Judas these days, um, and largely because he was the one who betrayed Jesus. Iscariot, don't know for sure what it means, um, but the traditional belief is it means the man from Kerioth. Kerioth was a small village in Judea, uh, so he'd be the only one that wasn't from the Galilee area. It's, it's, just, it's just so fascinating. We don't know for sure, but linguists have been doing a lot of study on this name. And through the years, uh, there's a lot of people that believe this. It's a mounting belief that Kerioth actually is a, the, the whole word Iscariot is a play on word that actually means the false one. And that, that could be true, which is just sort of intriguing. In other words, it's sort of in, in kind of a covert way, it sort of identifies him as the false one in a way that people didn't actually realize. But but it would have kind of almost like a double meaning. It means the man from Kerioth, but it also could mean the false one. Um, and so we don't know for sure, but it may have been sort of a subliminal message going on there from the Lord to us. Um, what we do know uh, is that he was, well, we think he might have been a dyer. That's the tradition, that he dyed clothes, you know, different colors. But what we do know for sure about this guy is that he was a disloyal and dishonest treasurer for the disciples and that he betrayed Jesus. And you know what? God was in charge of everything. Even the betrayal, it was, it was prophesied centuries in advance that Jesus would be betrayed. And so God even allows this to happen in order to set up the stage for what he's going to do. God is always, always in control. It also gives us a message, I think, for us, um, which is that when you choose people for leadership, watch out for Judas's. Now think about it. I, I can tell you in everything I've ever been a part of, all the way back to 
grade school to Cub Scouts to teams, sports teams, to businesses, to churches, there's always a Judas, isn't there? There's always somebody who you just kind of wonder if they're loyal or true, and every once in a while they'll betray you. You do not want to put those people in leadership. It sometimes happens. But Jesus you know, shows us that's why it's so important to pray and be very careful in naming them. So we've kind of got a, a whole view of this. just want to remind you that the main things to remember here is that when you put people in a position of leadership or if you're naming people leadership in any area of your life, again, you know, some of you guys are business people or, you know, you have to interview and hire people. There are things you want to look for in principle. And there's things that are more important that we look for as as followers of Christ, when we put people in leadership in our church, these people we should pray over. Pray, pray, pray. Whenever you have a crisis, pray. Remember, that's the most important thing to do. But also look for some of these guidelines. Are these people, you know, are, are, are they um, people that, you know, believe in the vision, mission, and values, you know, of our church and of our business? And most importantly, are they people in the church that are, are growing in their study of the Bible and their walk with the Lord? Are they diverse? Is there some diversity in this leadership that we see happening? Um, are they competent? Do they have character? Um, but most, it, one of the most important things is are we seeing their lives transformed? Are we seeing changes in their lives? And what I want you to think about is who do you identify with the most? And are you, how have you transformed in your own life? How have you changed since you came to know the Lord? I know for myself, I'm probably, it was more um, emotional and impulsive like Peter in my younger days. And that, still things that I'm working on, but you know, you grow in those areas in your life. Um, and you'll never completely change, but are you growing in those areas? Maybe you were one that had a temper issue. Or maybe you were one that always kind of was detached and had to, you know, independent, had to do things their own way. Or maybe there's some pride or snobbery. Or maybe, um, may, maybe you were the one that was always asking questions or the contrarian. How has God worked in your life? And you, should, you, you may have had some dramatic changes early on, but you should continue to be growing and changing. And if you aren't, then, uh, or if you've fallen backwards, then you, know, you need to have some you know, support. And I, I'd say this is what you do. You pray. Once again, the first thing you do is you pray. Get down on your knees and ask God for his assistance and help and, and growth in that area. And then the second thing you do is you find somebody important in your life. Like, for example, Peter had a very special relationship with John. And um, Philip had Nathaniel. And Simon the Zealot had Thaddeus, the big-hearted one. Who's the big-hearted one in your life? Or can you go to your small group and tell them about what you're going through? And ask them to pray for you and say, how can I need to grow my relationship with the Lord? There's some things I need to work through. And that becomes the starting place. And so we'd want to encourage you all to pursue that in your lives. Now, if you do not yet know the Lord, um, then, you know, what we have for you is the ABCs of salvation, which we love to share, which is that you need to admit that uh, you're a sinner in need of a Savior, you need to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave. And you need to choose to follow Christ and put your faith in him alone. And if you do those things, uh, then that's how you come into a relationship with God. We'd love to have you come and talk to us as others have so that we can explain that more in detail and pray with you and see you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, applying for the job. You don't apply for a job with Jesus. 
Um, but what really Jesus is asking, you know, you want to apply for how do you get in? All he's really asking is really a lot. is for you to give your life for him. That's what he's asking. And we're going to segue now into taking communion today. Jesus asks us to die for him, to give our lives for him. And he has the right to do that because what did he do for us? He gave his life for us. And so that's what we're going to talk about right now as we take the Lord's Supper. Um, Very interesting as we take the Lord's Supper because we have the 12 disciples that we just talked about. And sometimes we don't think about them, do we? We just, we think about what Jesus has to say, but these guys were there. They were there when he did the Lord's Supper. It's very interesting that, um, I I think it's in John where they have it, but um, John was sitting next to Jesus. Yeah, it was in John. And I believe it was on the left. So it was in the Passover meal. He's on his left side, which would have been the position that the youngest person sat on next to the presenter. That's how we know John's the youngest. Right across, right next to Jesus on the other side would be the right hand, would be the seat of honor. And from the way they go to get food together, it does appear that the seat of honor went to none other than Judas Iscariot. Across from, from John, the closest to him to talk to, because they're talking back and forth, uh, would be the position that was the lowest position, the most humble position at the table. And that belongs to none other, ironically, than Simon Peter. And what we believe is Simon Peter was the primary leader and the oldest, so he should not have had that seat. Um, but apparently determined to show the others that he was the most humble, he uh, forced that upon them so that he could sit in the most humble seat. These guys had issues, <laughs> just like us. And so as we need to remember how much we need Jesus. We think that Judas, by the way, probably left during this part of the meal. Um, but, but what we want you to think about at this time is that, you know, much like them, we have our issues and we need Jesus. And we needed his death and his resurrection on the cross to help us to transform. Because our lives are as messed up and sometimes we may say more so than theirs. Um, but God can take sinners, as we saw last week, like Matthew, and he can turn their lives 180 degrees around. And he can do that for us. And he's done that as I look around for some people in this room. And that warms my heart. And he's doing it for others. And I can't wait to see what he'll be doing in each person's life as we grow closer to him. So let's reflect on him now. Let's think about what he's done, how he's transformed us. Um, Remember that we need to depend on him. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. That's the main point. But also we need to make sure our hearts are are right with him. So um, confess your sins. Make sure there's no person that you have problems with, that we come united as a body. You make things right with people. And if you do not know the Lord, this isn't for you. This is an opportunity for you to watch, listen, learn, and come and ask later. And we'll tell you more again about how you can come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But for everybody else, um, I just want to give you an opportunity to kind of cleanse your heart. So we're going to have a, um, a quiet moment of reflection and of confession. And I'll close this in just a little bit.